All right, good morning, everybody. John 20 is where we are. Every week it's been appropriate to um, look at our theme verse. Most weeks we've at least thought about it. Probably half the weeks we've recited it. But... um, This is a perfect time to review it today because we are in John chapter 20 and our theme verse is verse 31. Those that have memorized it are in good shape. You've had a minute to do it. Uh, Those that haven't uh, can follow along if you have the New American Standard. And it says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. So, um, we know that this is the stated purpose of the book. And we know that throughout our study of John, we have seen, once we got past the preamble, we've seen uh, these these um, chapters, these um, little snapshots of, of signs that Jesus did, and then there was often uh, a bit of teaching that followed that. And, and these have been presented um, throughout the book um, as, as evidence, so to speak, uh, to convince people uh, of what he just says, that Jesus is the Christ. And um, the ultimate evidence, uh, of course, is the resurrection. And it's such a privilege to talk about that on Resurrection Sunday. So let's jump on in, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. As is often the case in scripture, they can pack a lot into a small verse. Um, The first day of the week, right? So uh, this was Sunday. um, And um, Mary Magdalene uh, gets mentioned briefly uh, in a few other places in scripture. But uh, Mary was... uh, a woman uh, apparently of some means. Uh, she had been a follower of Christ ever since she had had uh, seven demons exorcised from her and became a believer. And she was a supporter of Jesus, um, uh, both you know, as one of his followers, but also uh, many people think that she was able to support uh, his ministry financially as well. Not a lot more said in John. Um, She was probably well-known to many in his audience, uh, so not a whole lot of other discussion about who she was, uh, but we certainly hear a lot about what she did. So she uh, came to the tomb early, um, while it was still dark. Now, in other passages of Scripture, uh, we find that there were other women uh, with her, and there have been places where this has been looked at to to see well uh, did she go by herself early and then went came back with some other women or 
uh, was everybody kind of there together and they just highlight her uh, because she was uh, maybe she got there first uh, and there are people who have sorted all this out there's no controversy about any of this but uh, John chooses to focus on Mary uh, but in your mind you can have in the back of your mind that there were other uh, women there with her uh, it says while it was still dark we got that and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and we all have in our minds um, I guess through years of you know teaching and, and being in church most of us this concept of um, uh, a cave opening uh, with a uh, stone uh, a round stone in front of it um, with uh, some sort of a shallow trench perhaps where uh, that trench could be a guide for opening and closing the tomb we have that in our heads but there were a lot of different types of um, uh, ways that you could have buried someone back in the day so this was kind of a descriptive uh, term and um, the stones were were opened and, and closed um, because in, after a body had been laid to rest for a few years um, and decomposition had, had happened until there were just bones left then the family at some later date would go in gather the bones and put it in a special box designed for that purpose and then there would be room for additional people to be buried and often these uh, may have actually had several uh, shelves cut out inside the rock so that uh, several people could be buried um, in the same uh, perhaps a, a family uh, crypt you might say um, but we'll find later uh, and also in other passages of scripture um, robbing graves was a thing back in the day and um, uh, that you know comes into play as, as you know from the story uh, but this was a, a, a movable thing uh, that where the stone had been taken away from the tomb so in verse 2 it says so she ran uh, once she saw that the stone was open she leaves she runs it says and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple who we are going to assume is John the writer uh, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved and said to them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him so who is the they that she is speaking about uh, we would have to assume that this is um, the same crew that crucified Jesus right the the Jewish um, uh, hierarchy thank you the, the the people that were very close politically wise uh, with the Romans uh, they had uh, some uh, they, they had like temple guards who were uh, able to um, to use force if necessary um, we presume that is the they that she is referring to so in verse 3 it says so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb both of them were running together now this is an interesting thing um, how many of you run places nowadays <laughs> um, uh, I don't run uh, anywhere uh, I've had privilege to uh, to see the grandkids and they run everywhere I'm like why are y'all doing this um, but they were running and, and apparently back in the day even if you were uh, you know young enough to run um, 
this wasn't this wasn't a common thing. Uh, like you know, in the neighborhood, we'll see people out running just for fitness. Um, adult Jews didn't run. That was just not considered proper decorum. But uh, the urgency of finding out what happened overcame that, and it says they were running. They're running together, but the other disciple, this is John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So he runs, he gets there. Um, we think uh, John was probably a little bit younger than Peter. And it says, in stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. So he, he pokes his head in there. Now remember, it's still fairly dark. And if you're running, you can't run with a torch. Um, so he gets there, it's probably dawn is just now breaking, but can't see great. But he peeks in there enough to see the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And that's what we would expect from Peter, right? Just, I'm heading in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which, has been on, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but the, um, the ESV that I use says folded up in a place by itself, more accurately, it's probably the New Americans version says, but rolled up in a place by itself. We hear of this uh, face cloth in the description of Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. Now, of course, he, he came out in his grave clothes and his, you know, the, the windings that he would have been buried in and his face cloths because Jesus said, you know, take these off of him. Um, perhaps a little graphic, but the description I heard was that... Um, that this, this cloth rolled up, um, picture literally rolling up a sheet of fabric, and then it would actually go under the chin, tied up above the head to keep the mouth closed. That was, that was the purpose of that. Um, so it's, you know, all the grave clothes, I mean, the, um, uh, the, the, the uh, how's the, what's the passage here? Um, yeah, the linen cloth is all it says um, in one section and then the face cloth in the other. Uh, verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So this is John. And he saw and believed. So people say, well, what was it that he actually believed? And people uh, think that uh, what, is, what John actually believed in at this point was the reference, uh, if I can find it here. It's further back in John that basically says, or was it in Luke? It basically says, I'm going to explain this to you uh, because I'm going away to the Father and you're going to be sad, um, but then later there will be joy because you'll know I've gone back to the Father. Uh, and people say that what John believed at this point, because he really hadn't sorted it all out, it really hasn't worked through the Scriptures yet, what he really thought was he's gone to be the Father. Uh, he had resurrected and gone to be with the Father. At this point, we think it probably had not occurred to him that he was still around. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Um, 
Luke says, uh, you know, we don't really hear what Peter had to say in John's version, but Luke's version basically says Peter was trying to put us all together. He didn't quite get what had happened thus far. Next scene, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, through inflection, you can take this, Woman, why are you weeping? a few ways it could be just coming across somebody and saying hey why are you weeping as if you really want to know but taken another way it's almost like a little bit of scolding like why are you weeping did you expect to see a body whom are you seeking he says Oh, I skipped a part. Uh, she said to them, They've taken away my Lord. Here's this they again. I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So by this time, it's probably a little lighter, but, you know, she's been crying, tears, um, certainly not imagining that it could be anyone, you know, like the Lord. Um, She turned around, saw Jesus standing. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, same question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? This sounds more like the, the second, I mean, the, the first way. You know, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... And then she turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Uh, I had not really heard this before. Some of my reading, apparently there were um, three uh, ranks, so to speak, of uh, the people that you might, what we might call rabbis. Uh, I forget the name of, that they used for the first one. Um, your second level was called rabbi and your third highest level of teacher was uh, this Rabboni. Um, so, you know, the, that's her address. And, um, and then it says this verse that, unbeknownst to me, apparently scholars have spent tons of time talking about. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So people say, Well, what does this mean? Do not cling to me. People say, Well, is that because his body was still, you know, somehow, you know, radioactive? <laughs> you know, not really, but somehow special, you know, kind of a Shekinah you know, Moses sort of thing, don't look at me, don't cling to me sort of thing. Um, but then other people say, well, 
you know, not long not long after, you know, we see him give Thomas that option. Um, so, so maybe it's not that. Um, then say, well, what does this really mean? You know, uh, don't don't get so physically attached to me anymore. That's not how you're going to relate to me from now on. Um, you know, people look at this, you know, some sort of um, metaphoric way. You know, don't. Um, don't be so physically attached to me anymore because um, it's going to be different now. Um, the thing that kind of makes the most sense to me is that, you know, if she was probably kneeling and crying and so forth, she didn't bring a chair. Um, she may have been on her knees already and Jesus walks up, she turns and then recognizes when he calls her name. You remember he said, you know, my sheep know my voice. Um, he recognize, She recognizes Jesus and then perhaps just falls at his feet and grabs his feet. And, and so one way to think of it is to say, hey, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't cling to me because you need to go do something. And this, what you need to go do is you need to go to my brothers and tell them this message. And to me, the, kind of common sense things just make the most sense to me. Um, so that just that just sounds reasonable at least. But the, this is uh, the other part that kind of gives people uh, a bit of confusion. The special message that says, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So this is um, interesting because he says, go to my brothers and say to them. So this was a little different. Um, you know, they're, they're brothers now. So uh, indicating maybe things have, the status has changed because of the cross. Um, but this ascending to my father and so forth, some people think because of things that we'll look at later, that between the time Mary left and eight days later, um, where our next scene happens, that Jesus did go to heaven and come back. Um, that that was, that that, that happened. Um, I, I don't have a resolution for that little part. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, Mary was not only Mary Magdalene was not only the first apostle, the first one to tell the good news, she was the apostle to the apostles. And so when people, you know, I think when people think about, you know, it's a hot topic nowadays about uh, uh, proper status for men versus women and all that sort of stuff, um, more than, more than, ever, but certainly back in the day, uh, it would have not been considered good form uh, to make a woman such a, a pivotal part of the story. Uh, that would not have helped your case, so to speak. Uh, they would have not had added that element of authority and so forth, um, where if you had had some man or somebody with a title to do it. So here we have some woman who 
other than maybe having a little money, her only other claim to fame was you know, being demon-possessed for who knows how long. That probably didn't really help her reputation very much. Um, but she gets to be the pivotal part in the story, and in a way, to me, it just adds authenticity to the story, because if man had told this, you wouldn't have told it this way. Verse 19. On evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So several things. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So um, they had picked off their leader. It wouldn't have been a big stretch of the imagination that they might be coming for them. Uh, the Jews, the whole point was they felt threatened and they were, they were hiding out. Makes sense. But we also find the doors being locked, which kind of adds to the notion of this was a miracle. Jesus came and stood among them, um, and he didn't go through the door. Peace be with you. Lot to be said about that, you know, shalom, uh, peace be with you. Um, certainly it was a greeting, but we know that there's this ultimate peace that you can only have through Jesus. So there's a little part of that in there too. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <laughs> As opposed to being freaked out when they saw the Lord. Um, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So here we have this uh, commissioning, so to speak, that um, he is telling them, uh, I am sending you out to, to basically take over what I've been doing. Now we have what we call the Great Commissioning, or the Great Commission, rather, uh, in Matthew 28, um, a more formal declaration, whether this is John's extremely concise summary of that or whether this is uh, something separate from that, I'm not sure. Um, but in any event, we have this, um, this directive to them, I'm, I'm sending you. Uh, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And um, you know, above all things, what the cross showed was that Jesus was obedient above everything, um, even to the point of going to the cross, even to the point of going to a cross where he knew what was going to happen when he went to the cross. Uh, he was the ultimate obedient servant. And then here's this next passage, which makes the consternation that they have about Mary clinging to Jesus pale in comparison. Verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what is this all about? When he said to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when do we typically think of the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit? In Acts, right? Acts chapter 2. It's a pretty big description of what happens. And 
When does it happen? At Pentecost. Somebody said it. How many days? 50 days after Passover. So, so what's going on here? Um, there were, I think, seven different versions among about 24 different commentators who had an opinion about this. I'm not going to go over all of those. So first off, uh, one commentator seemed to have a good point. Um, this concept, it says, he breathed on them and said to them. Now, some people picture this is like what they call insufflation. Insufflation, it, you can almost think of like inflation, okay? Insufflation is when you put, you, you breathe air into something, right? Um, when, um, when you blow up an air mattress, right, you're, you're, you're insufflating. We call it insufflation. I don't know if you've ever had the thing where, uh, as, as doctors, we're trying to see if your um, eustachian tube is blocked. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but a lot of times there's this little attachment. We can put it on a little ear thing. It's a little bulb, and we can blow air in your ear. That's called insufflation. Pre-tip there. <laughs> Some people say, well, because the word here is the word we get emphysema from. It's, it's an exhaling. It says, he breathed on them. Some people say breathed into them. Some people point out that in the real Greek, it just says he breathed. So, you know, a lot of talk about that. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so what, what happens here? Here are the big theories. One theory is, this is John's version of the Pentecost. This is him for literary reasons and just to make a theological point that there is a deep connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the receipt of the Holy Spirit that for literary and theological reasons, he's putting this receipt of the Holy Spirit in this juxtaposition, all right? That's one theory. The second theory is that um, they got a partial filling of the Holy Spirit um, just for the purposes of making this. Remember the passage that says, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you remembrance of all the things I'm teaching you, they say, well, this was kind of just an extra dose of that so that they could really get the most out. I'm heavily paraphrasing here. That they could get the most out of the remainder of his time on earth in person. Um, that this was uh, like a partial filling of the Holy Spirit um, for that purpose. Um, one very well-respected commentator who... I tend to land with more times than not. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, says that he doesn't think this means that at all, that, um, that it just means he breathed. And when it says re receive the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying um, when the time comes, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, because he, he brings forth several examples that says, 
there wasn't a, you know, after Pentecost, there was a huge change, right? I mean, Peter's preaching to 3,000 people, and they're just, all, you know, just exploding the gospel. There was a huge change when, when they really received the Holy Spirit in Acts. And as we'll see next week, you know, the, the disciples, they went back fishing, right? So they're not really showing evidence of the full filling of the Holy Spirit, like you would expect. Um, one little verse caught my eye that that made me land with the partial filling camp. Acts chapter 1 says, In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up all right, listen to this. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this command about I'm sending you, that there was some sort of a Holy Spirit component to that commissioning. So it, at least Luke is referencing some action of the Holy Spirit between the Holy Spirit and the disciples prior to Pentecost that Luke himself is going to talk about in the following chapter. So that kind of landed me on the, the middle camp of uh, this was a, a partial um, uh, receipt of the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> verse 23, it gets, it gets, it gets worse uh, <laughs> or better. Um, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Nobody, nobody I read gave me the answer I wanted for this. Um, they glossed over it. And I'm not kidding. When you read D.A. Carson's commentary, which was written back in the 90s, but he spends, and I don't, 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 don't understand that I read everything that he writes, right? I, there's lots of skimming going on. But it's not uncommon. He'll devote 100 pages of his commentary to a single chapter, right? Do you know how much he devoted to that verse? About three paragraphs. I'm like, are you kidding me? The whole thing? I mean, think, who does this? The priests, right? Our Catholic neighbors, this is their justification for priests forgiving sin. It seems like a decent verse for that. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That sounds like a pretty good verse for them. And so if you follow their logic that when Jesus said on you, Peter, I'm going to build this church, and they claim Peter is the first original pope, and if Peter was there and received this instruction, hey, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That seems like pretty good justification. I was extremely disappointed in my uh, teaching crew that I consult. Um, most of them just glossed over it and said, this is just talking about proclamation of the gospel. Okay, but that's not what it sounds like to me. Here's the best I could come up with, which is in line kind of with some of them, although they didn't say it as well as I thought they should. When you share the gospel with someone, when it's just you and your Bible or your tract, and you've talked somebody through the plan of salvation, 
and you've heard them confess their sins and ask for forgiveness, what can you now tell them? But your sins are forgiven. Because you've seen what happened, and you've seen them ask for forgiveness, and because of the faith in the word, you can declare their sins are forgiven. That's the way I understand this. And we could probably also say, by observing the fruit of certain people who maybe at one point had claimed to be Christians, but you can see their apostate life, and you can, with some justification perhaps, say, they're not a Christian. That's how I take this. We... You can't pull this verse out from everything else that says the effective forgiveness of sin only happens through God. Right? That is not our job. And um, so this de- declarative purpose where, where, where Jesus is saying, you know, you will be able to declare someone's forgiveness is different than being able to say you will be able to um, actuate their their forgiveness. Does that help a little? You with me? Thank you, even if you're not. Uh, (laughs) Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is another argument for it not being Pentecost. Because Thomas didn't get the blessing just then, right? He wasn't there. Whereas in in Luke, Thomas and a bunch of other people were there. All right. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, oh yeah, I I misspoke earlier. It wasn't eight days later, but now it is. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. (laughs) The other 10 had to have said, yep, we told you. You know, we should have warned you. We didn't know. Um, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe. I'm sorry. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now in Luke is the only passage where um, we find where Jesus says, you know, see my hand, see my side, see my feet. Apparently, and that's the the only little reference that gives support to the visual imagery that we have of Jesus' hands and his feet being pierced. Apparently, you know, it was actually the wrist or the forearm that was done, um, but that much of the time the feet were just tied up. But because Jesus said, see my hands and side and feet that's the the support for assuming that um, 
that the way he was crucified had the nail. And it did for others as well. Um, but, uh, but that's the scriptural support for that image. And then verse 28, Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. This, this my Lord and my God declaration of Jesus being Lord and God was a big deal. It's fact, it's such a big deal that some people have even doubted whether Thomas really said that. They say, no, they didn't really talk about Jesus like that back in that day. John just put this in here. Um, the full, you know, titling of the deity of God had not been de fully developed at this point in writings and everything. It sounds like a stretch. Thomas gets it. And far from being called doubting Thomas, he ought to be, you know, putting it all together and getting it out in a short phrase, Thomas, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And this little, you know, beatitude as it were, that's us, right? We haven't seen, but we are blessed because we have God's word and we can believe. Now verse 30 and verse 31 start to make so much sense, right? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Several commentators made the point that this word order um, makes a difference. Um, see if I can. Yeah, it says. Another way to translate this is to say the Christ, the son of God is Jesus. Which is different than saying. Jesus is the Messiah. Um, the difference is you have a bunch of people who believe there was a real Jesus, which would be a lot of people nowadays, right? And the Jews even know there was a historic Jesus, but they don't think he's the Messiah. Back then, it was... People, everybody was looking for a Messiah, right? And it, there were many false messiahs. This was a, you know, he was a great example of maybe a new version of Messiah. So the convincing had to be, it's Jesus. We'll get it. We'll finish up some more uh, next week. I want to give people a chance to get their seats, but... Of all the things that John includes, the whole purpose was evangelism. He was writing to get people saved. Now, has there been amazing encouragement for those of us who have been saved? Absolutely. But this was a verse, or this was a book, to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and by believing you may have life in his name. 
And I think John did what he set out to do. Um, let's close, and uh, we'll wrap up John next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing story of the resurrection. We thank you for the life that we have received because of the resurrection. We thank you that uh, that power can be in us every day um, and that you are in the process of continuing to uh, recreate us. And we thank you. Uh, We thank you for all that you've done. That, in fact, you are a gardener who put everything back into place that was messed up in the first garden. And you said it right in this one. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.